I'm Stefan Sittig, and welcome to American Theatre Artists Online, where we talk with leading contemporary figures in American theatre. If you've been enjoying the American Theatre Artists Online podcast, I urge you to consider donating to help the artists who produce the theatre that we all love so much. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, Many performers, designers, directors, choreographers, stage crew members, and theater administration staff are either without a job or in peril of losing their jobs. The Actors Fund provides assistance to artists to cover basic living expenses, such as food, essential medications, utilities, and more. If you love and enjoy theater, please consider donating to the Actors Fund today. Just go to actorsfund.org and press donate. My guest today is Sharice Moshgani. She is a Washington DC-based theatrical lighting designer, and she is one of only a handful of women of color designing lighting for professional theater in the United States. She has designed for Arena Stage, Signature Theater, Seattle Repertory Theater, The Old Globe, and San Diego Repertory Theater. In 2019, Moshgani's design for Into the Woods at Barrington Stage won a Berkshire Theatre Critics Circle Award. And in 2017, she served as associate lighting designer for the legendary Howell Binkley on Broadway's hit musical, Come From Away. Moshgani is a member of United Scenic Artists 829, and she is an assistant professor in the School of Theatre at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. Originally from Orange County, California, Moshgani holds a BA in Theater Arts from UC Santa Cruz and an MFA in Lighting Design from UC San Diego. Hi, Charisse. Hello. How are you? Doing well, doing as well as we can. Right, yeah, during this quarantine time, it's not easy. How are you holding up? All right, you know, we're, uh, my husband and I are, are I'm self-isolating with our two small children. Um, we have a four-year-old and a seven-month-old, and I actually have the seven-month-old with me right now. Currently, she has a pacifier in her mouth, but she could at any moment spit that out and start That's, babbling. Well, you know, we might have her ask answer a few questions, too. She may have some comments. Exactly. She has a very unique perspective on the world. <laughs> well, we're happy that she's with us. And, you know, we, I, I, you know, kudos to you for balancing um, being a parent uh, of young children during this difficult time when everyone's stuck at home and trying to balance all those things. So thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be on American Theatre Artists Online. You're our first designer. I know. I'm a little embarrassed that it's taken us this long to get to a designer, but you get to set the standard. Okay. Do my best. <laughs> so on that note, you know, you're a lighting designer and you've been doing this for a while. You've been doing it and everywhere from New York to DC to West Coast and East Coast and New England. Um, you have quite a diverse uh, resume. And so we're really excited that you're going to be able to share some of your uh, experience with us here on our podcast. So how did you first get your start in lighting design? Was this something you always wanted to do or did you have a mentor or someone or how, how did you get started? Um, in high school, I, I wanted to be involved in plays. Like since I was a little kid, um, mm. I went to um, a private elementary school where they had a lot of great arts funding 
And so then when I went to public middle school and high school, I always wanted to continue that and be involved in the arts in some way. Mm-hmm. And when I got to high school, I realized that I made friends with the kids who did tech. And I realized that I kind of hated going to rehearsal, actually, <laughs> or learning my lines. Sure. And I was a bad dancer. <laughs> and my ears got really hot whenever I was on stage and I had to be saying something. Huh. So what I... What I found once I made friends with the tech kids was that I could do, if I did the lighting, I would be involved in every moment of the show without my ears getting really hot. Um, so that was very appealing to me to be that kind of storyteller. The, and ear, so I went the ear temperature. To, um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so I went to undergrad knowing that that, that was what I wanted to do to, to be a lighting designer. Wow. And did you have anyone sort of mentor you through or say to you, you know, you should be a designer or, or did it really just come from, from yourself? It really was just like hanging out with those tech kids and wanting, and wanting to be a part of this. Like, of course I had many mentors who helped me along the way and encouraged me um, once I was in school, but the spark to do it, I don't really know how I figured out that lighting design was a thing, but the spark to do it came really just from wanting to always be involved, whatever that means. I don't know. No, no, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> was there was there a production ever that you saw as an audience member that you went, wow, this lighting is amazing and this is what I want to do or this design or was there something that sparked that in terms of maybe watching or seeing? You know, I, it's so funny that you bring this up. Like, I saw a production of a tour of Ragtime um, when I was in middle school um, that was just stunning. I don't, I, like, I have no idea who the designer was for Ragtime. That's terrible. I should find out. Like, I, um, I should know, too, and I'll find out, and we can, we can tell yeah. them first. But, but I think that, that that was the first time that I saw sort of the scale really saw what the scale of theater could be outside of, say, like the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, right? Mm -hmm. Growing up in Southern California, you don't really have access to a lot of um, theater except for, you know, the the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, which I, like, lived for my whole life. Like, since I was, like, five years old, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade has been such an important part of I don't know who I was for some reason. <laughs> no, that's, that's great. Well, that was your exposure to some of what was happening yes. on the East Coast, right? Yes, so exactly. you were you grew up on the West Coast in Orange County, right? Yes, exactly. So yeah, there is a difference, right? The coasts do feel different and their approach to theater, I think, is a little bit different too. And and so you you were far away geographically from New York, but I guess the, the Thanksgiving Day Parade helped you um, stay more connected. Yeah, and for some reason, the parade, maybe it's just because it's so much more fun than the Tonys. Like, for that reason, like, that thing sticks in my mind as sort of, like, my highlight, the highlight of my Broadway year as a small child. Sure. No, I know. There's a lot of performances, and you see how the balloons and everything together, so it's very visual. So that's Mm -hmm. probably why you... So um, I was looking at your website as part of, you know, getting ready to talk to you. And and on there, you mentioned something I thought was interesting in your... When you're talking about how you approach design, you say, 
Quote, my design style focuses on immaculately lit actors and bold background color choices. I have developed a deep devotion to new work and find creating a visual language for storytelling fascinating. Can you tell us more about that? I think it's a great, great, I mean, you've described it pretty accurately there, but can you expand? Sure. I think that the devotion to new work comes from where I went to school. So um, I started at UC Santa Cruz, Mm -hmm. where they have a, um, they call it their Chautauqua Festival. Um, At least when I was there, that's what it was. And it was this playwriting festival um, for undergraduate students. And a couple of the years I did it, we did like 25 plays, which is insane, right? But like that idea that anyone's story there, you know, if it was good, if you could put together a good enough play, it could be on on our stages was really exciting to me. Um, And I also did some work with them with a group on campus called Rainbow Theater that also had a sort of new work element. Um, Sometimes if a student had written a good play, we would do it. And we also had a piece called Poets Corner, which really was devised work. We wouldn't have called it that at that time because we didn't know that was what it was. Mm -hmm. But that was what it was. You know, it was like students. um, And usually these were like non- non-theater students just poc students Mm -hmm. who would be doing this work and Mm -hmm. so so that really sparked a love of new plays for me it's always and doing a world premiere is always delightful because you're like the first person to get a stab at it no one else is going to say to you like oh hey this is the way we did it here Mm -hmm. here and here and so that was always really important to me and then i went to grad school at uc san diego that has an amazing playwriting program Mm And, um, and every year we would have, um, two, you know, one or two new playwrights and we would do a festival of their work in the spring as well. And, and, and amazing playwrights like Lauren Yee is in my cohort. So, um, so that sort of devotion to playwrights and seeing plays develop, play development, and seeing the influence that designers can have on the ability to take like a playwright's idea and expand it and make it even more than they could imagine it, and how that then influences the writing and makes the writing more exciting for the next one, um, was just really wonderful and exciting to me. So I've always really been drawn to new work. Yeah, and so in that process of developing a new piece, <clears throat> what is your input? So as a designer, obviously you're there from the beginning in the production meetings and you're part of the whole uh, putting it together, but did you collaborate closely with the, the playwright? Is there a different synergy there because the playwright potentially is there with you or in the room rather than doing a classic or something where the playwright's not around? Right, because I think what it allows for is a deep investigation of the work where you can, like, ask questions Mm -hmm. and spark things that they hadn't thought about, right? Um, Lighting designer, designers in particular always, and lighting designers, we're looking at the whole picture um, in a different way that's not just dialogue-based, and we're trying to make connections and trying to draw out dramaturgical lines so that we can make meaning, Mm -hmm. Always, yeah. right? Like I always tell my students, right? Like every every choice that you make, there has to be some kind of meaning behind it, and you have to draw that back from the text. So, right? Like, so why are you choosing that blue? Why are you choosing that gobo? Mm. Because I think it's pretty isn't a good answer. It has to 
come back to the text somehow. So I think that designers are always investigating things, right? So if someone shows up in a new piece of dialogue and it's not clear where they are, we're going to ask that question, right? Like, where do you imagine they are? Um, we're always going to find those little things like, hey, you said this person comes in through a window, but then you talk about how the window's closed. So is the window open or closed? Are there more mm -hmm. than one window? What's happening? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I've been called story girl before because I do... <laughs> uh, get a little bit obsessed with the text. Well, I mean, you are, you're telling the story using lights, right? And I think a lot of people who don't work in design and even people in theater who are not in design, you know, the actors, the directors, the, the other people often don't um, understand that you're trying to tell a story and how important it is. So what you just said about, well, sometimes, you know, I don't just pick it because it's pretty. I think a lot of people literally think that designers pick things just because they're pretty. So <laughs> giving this information that you just did about having the backstory, that is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, it's not something yeah, so I that... thought of. Oh, no, go ahead. No, it's, I say it's not something I ever thought of, you know, and it's great that, that there's a story connected and it's not just a design element because that blue looks good with that costume or that. I mean, and I realize that there is a visual element to everything you guys do too, of course, but it's yeah. within the context of the story. That's what you're saying yeah. that drives it. Yeah. And so right. it really yeah. works. Yeah. So what, <clears throat> so, you know, recently on Broadway and, and in, in regional theaters, I've seen sort of a change as an audience member. I've been, been seeing a lot of shows where now there's a three-dimensional, you know, the, the, what used to be three-dimensional, three-dimensional set, so to speak, the unit set, uh, is less emphasized, and there seems to be more and more emphasis on screens and projections. Um, this must affect your work, and what do you think about this, and, and is it more challenging to light flat surfaces? Like, I'm trying to, as someone in the audience, how does this affect what you do? Um, it's interesting. I've been doing a lot of lighting with projections since grad school. Mm -hmm. um, it was since it was sort of a new medium then we were doing a lot of like playing around with it in the lab. Um, so it has become really second nature to me. Mm -hmm. um, I did a show in grad school where, where we projected on, we it was in the round and there were four walls on each side of the audience or there were walls on each side of the audience so we were projecting on the floor and on all sides of the audience. Mm -hmm. And so... <laughs> I was like, how do you want me to like this? Right. <laughs> do you want me to like and still it was like all lit with top light because that was the only option we had and then right. we would turn it off when we were projecting on the floor and there would just be no light. Yeah. So it so it's something that I um that I learned how to do by playing when the stakes were really low. Um, right? Um mm -hmm. in grad school nobody's paying you and you know, you hardly your grades are really not um, right. You're being graded more on how you explore and how you learn and less on, mm -hmm. you know, how great and successful something is. Yeah. Um, so, so I feel like I was able to learn about lighting for projections in a really low stakes way, which was um, important. And I also have done a little bit of projection design myself. So I do know um, how to balance mm -hmm. lighting and projection um, in that way. Right. Like, Again, it just comes down to what is the most important thing for us to be looking at right now, right? Um, for, right for the storytelling. So, if the most important thing is that we hold this person in a follow spot or you know in a special, so that we can see all of these images upstage, and great. If the images are 
background landscape and what's happening and people are running around on stage and we need to definitely like them, then that's about balance. Um, so yeah, so, so it's not surprising to me that we're seeing this, right? Like I think it's really cool and hip and I think the way that, especially coming out of this moment, when we come out of this moment, I think we're gonna see a lot of video elements stay in the theater for a little while. We're gonna all be so used to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good so point. So I think it's just a reality that um, we're gonna have to, it's gonna be a trend for a little while that we're gonna have to accept. Um, yeah. Well, there are screens everywhere, right? And and, yeah. and and the younger generations, they grow up with screens. Like someone like me, I didn't have a lot of screens other than the TV screen. I guess that's a screen uh-huh. too. But, you know, we, we grow up, uh, we didn't grow up with a, a iPad in our hands or a, a phone attached to us 24-7. But, but the... Yeah. But the newer audiences have the younger generations, so they're yep. they're very used to to seeing projections and flat screens and and things that they they want. Multiple inputs. Yes, yeah. and so that and I've seen that uh, in in mainstream work that I that I've seen as well as in some of the more uh, new work and and more experimental stuff. But it's really I, I sit there and I wonder how the poor lighting designer has designed with all these flat surfaces. So that's interesting that you so you use the floor. A lot more, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. You, like a lot of the time, it's side light. It like the basic is that if something's going to be projected on, then it's all side light, right? Like for our production of Curious that we did at Roundhouse last season, um, that was all. It's primarily side lit, and then we had a false water operator. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I just knew that from the beginning. Um, we did have a white floor, which caused a little bit of chaos, but. Um, we did early on. I was like, hey, maybe that floor can be carpet. And Paige huh. Hacker, the designer, was like, sure. Wow. Well, because it gets some <laughs> texture, less, right? A little bit less bounce with yeah. the with the carpet. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, uh, you just mentioned the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime, right? At, at Roundhouse Theater in yes. that's in Bethesda, right? Bethesda, Maryland. Yeah. Um, but yes. so, can, I'm glad you mentioned one of the works that you that you put a lot of time and effort into. But can you talk to us a bit about a particular design or two that you've done that you were really happy about and that really in your in your mind typified your style and and, and what was special about it to you? Um, I think that. The roundhouse production was was really lovely, but it's but it um, I had to fight with myself a little bit about Curious Incident because the palette the color palette is so contained, mm-hmm. and I am a person who loves color, mm-hmm. um, and I love designing with color. So I think the most recent um, good example of that was probably a production I did of Spunk at Signature. Ah, um, tell us more about that production. um, So it's a Zoralina Hurston piece, and it was just, um, it's these three short stories um, of African-American life, Mm -hmm. and it was just an absolutely beautiful, a beautiful way to use color um, to navigate mood and um, story, and, and it all flowed so well together and in time with music um and for me uh it was a really it was also a really small and intimate piece mm-hmm. um and so I was able to do some really beautiful things with color um and light in um, a very controlled and small way which I love mm. and I didn't see that production unfortunately but I did see your design for Ain't Misbehaven at Signature 
And I also yes. really enjoyed the way you, you framed uh, the actors and the way you, you presented the, it was, it was a beautiful lighting design. It was one of my, you know, I've seen Amos Behaving a million times. So to see it with a really a vibrant and exciting lighting design that really worked with the actors so well and the movement uh, was really fantastic. So, so, um, so you were talked about Spunk at Signature. Um, was there anything particularly different that you did with that production that you really felt um, may not have been done before with this piece, or did you take a different approach? Well, it was in the round. Mm -hmm. um, I do a lot of work in the round, so I think that that maybe is it was one thing mm -hmm. um, that was maybe a little bit different than other productions of it. It, it was very, it was very small, which was great. I thought, More intimate, um, yeah. yes. Right. So that it was all about these sort of intimate moments and really painting with light on, you know, on their bodies and on, cause there wasn't much else and on mm. the floor, yeah. there's not a lot more to play with than that. Um, it's funny. <laughs> um, when I, I went to grad school in 2009, 2009, and the first meeting we had at UC San Diego, they said, you know, there are no more, there are no more secret piles of money. And I was like, were there secret piles of money? <laughs> That's a great way to start a meeting. <laughs> that where? was the beginning. There, there were no more secret piles of money. And so yeah. that meant that all the budgets were slashed. Huh. But for lighting, um, you don't need much. There's not much of a budget for lighting unless you're talking about renting moving lights, right? But if yeah. you're going to just play with what you have and a sheet of gel is like $12, mm -hmm. you're still going to get the color that you want. Sure. Um, so I so I did a lot of practice in a time where lighting had to do a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And so I appreciate a project where I have to do a lot of work. Like in Spunk, where I have, where I, where I have to make a lot of this where I have to suggest a lot of the locations. The same mm -hmm. was true in Curious Incident. I have to suggest a lot of the, the locations in that piece. Yeah. So I appreciate that, doing that work. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really amazing what you have to do. And, and when you're working with small budgets and also, or in small spaces or when the audience is all around. And I know that you've worked at Arena and Signature here in DC that are spaces that that are challenging in that way um, because their audiences is, is, are on several sides and you have... Not a, you know, arena's bigger, but you don't have a huge amount of space to work with. But then on the other side of that, I know that you also worked on Come From Away on Broadway with the legendary late Howell Binkley, who just passed. Yeah. Uh, you were associate lighting designer um, for that production. What was it like working on a, and that's, you know, I know that Come From Away, uh, having seen the show, really is an intimate show, but really on Broadway, it becomes a much bigger thing. So how, how was that experience being, an, and how was it different being an associate lighting designer? Well, it is, it is a really different job being an associate as opposed to being the designer. When you're the designer, your work is all about the text and all about creating lighting cues. Um, working for Howell um, is about managing, was about managing all of the other things, mm -hmm. um, you know, every light that you see when you walk into a theater has about, you know, three or four different numbers associated with it. And it's about keeping track of all of those things and making sure all of the lights are working. And if they're not working, making sure you have an electrician who can go fix it and get it working. Right. It's about, um, sustaining an environment around a person so that they can do their best work. Mm. Um, 
a really amazing thing about working for Howell that was not true um, working for other lighting designers is that for Howell, the associate was also responsible for communication with the stage manager. So Howell would um, cue cue a number and the associate would pay attention to where he's writing in his light cues. And he has some notes that he had taken prior. And then um, the associate would then turn to the stage manager and communicate all of those cue placements. Oh, wow. Um, so, um, so anytime he would add a cue in a number, usually when he's watching a, when he was watching a show, sorry, I keep on, it's very hard to not talk about him in the present tense. I understand. Um, Anytime he would watch a number, he would snap any place where a cue placement went. Um, and so you, so as the associate, you would follow along in the script while he did that. And anytime there was a snap where there wasn't a cue, you would make a little line in your book. Wow. Because one day there would be a cue there. Oh. And so, well, that's a really, um, that's a really kinetic way, kinesthetic way, sorry, to work, right? I mean, you're really like snapping. Absolutely. So he literally was snapping his fingers. And then you yes. would you would you would hear the snap, and then you would <laughs> right. And he would make note too. He's like, "Oh, there's no cue there. I need to add a cue for this place." And so he would go back and write that cue, wow. and then he would turn to me to you and be like, "You have that placement," and hopefully you did. <laughs> <laughs> you were paying attention, wow. and so you could communicate it to the stage manager. You know what was amazing about Comfort Away at the beginning because um, I worked on it um, from La Jolla onward. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was just such a lovely group of humans. Yes. I think I think that that was essential, actually, to the story that was being told, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when I first heard about it, and it was like, hey, we're going to do this Canadian feel-good 9-11 musical. Yeah. It was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not easy to <laughs> A little bit of trepidation. Yeah. Um, but it was, you know the most beautiful piece that just brings people together and makes a community out of an audience every single night. Um, and there, there could be no ego on that show. Right. Right. Um, it just didn't work. Um, when we were starting out, I don't know how it is now because I'm not really involved in the, in like the tours or anything, but, um, but yeah, like the, a thing I'll never forget is like when we were still in previews in La Jolla, um, um, they realized that we needed some exit music mm-hmm. for the show because the you know it was the the space in the Hoya that we did it wasn't we didn't do it in their large proscenium it was in a black box oh, right. and it's okay. really hard to get the audience in and out mm-hmm. um, when it's set up in proscenium it just takes forever sure. and so they wrote this exit music they wrote this long piece of exit music mm-hmm. to play um, during the walkout the band. And so the first night, and so we got a copy of it, and we're like, okay, great. Here's some exit music. We'll write another look for it, mm. I guess. Mm. Um, Howell was gone, I think. He had gone mm. on to do something else. Sure. It was near the end of the process. And um, and then um, they started playing the music, and the audience stayed. Right? They had just finished yeah. clapping, and they stayed and clapped along and listened to the whole piece of exit music. Oh, wow. <laughs> before they left. And that is still the way it is today. Wow. Um, huh. Now it's a whole now it's a whole nother number. Right. But, <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And that wasn't intended. And you think it's the audience doesn't want to leave or slash yeah. they want to uh, kind of live in that moment a bit? It's, 
I think it's both of those things. Yeah. I think the audience wants to continue living in mm-hmm. that moment, yeah. and and have them. And it's also a piece where like we don't give the audience a lot of opportunities to applaud, mm-hmm. and so it's a moment sort of of shared experience right. where they get to stand and acknowledge their neighbors right. and clap along and enjoy yeah. this piece of music. Oh well, I think that's wonderful. I mean, that's a great you know unintended, but nevertheless, it's good that you had that you did some lighting for that. <laughs> right. Yes. Then we, yeah, we we added a lot of cues to it eventually. <laughs> right. That's amazing. So it became an additional number. That's a great insider uh, uh, note that a lot of people probably don't know about about that piece. So thanks for sharing that. But you know, I was just thinking as I was uh, thinking about uh, talking to you today and interviewing you and talking about your experiences um, as a lighting designer and and you know and I know you're a, a woman of color and I kept thinking to myself, wow. I mean, there can't be that many women of color in the United States that are lighting designers. And then I started asking, why, why is that, you know? And so I was looking through um, some information online and I found a HowlRound article from Portia McGovern, who I know you, you know, uh, with the headline, Who Designs and Directs in Lort Theaters by Gender? And this was a study that she did in 2012-13, and I know you're aware of it, uh, through 2015-16 theater seasons, and showed that two-thirds of all Lort League of Resident Theaters designers in that period were men, who took almost three-quarters of all the design jobs. And in lighting design, when I went to look at the lighting design numbers, um, it clocked in with 16% of jobs going to women only, and women making up just about 20% of the lighting workforce. So that's a big, big intro to basically ask you, you know, as a woman of color in a mostly white male field, dominated field, what do you think is getting in the way of true diversity in, in, in U.S. professional theater in, in design? And, and what, what do you think could be done to improve the situation? I think that people who do hiring directors, producers have to investigate the way that they, how their hiring practice works. Okay. Because I don't think, because I don't think that people think about it very often when they think about hiring designers um, Mm. and think about the way that designers, um, the way a designer's experience, lived experience, influences a piece of theater. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, we so when we see um, BIPOC pieces designed entirely from a white male perspective, when those people live in New York City, or white male perspective, a white New Yorker male perspective, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, that is a very particular lived experience and the and you cannot research your way into a black experience you can do a lot of really good research mm-hmm. right but that lived experience is important and it's also important that people be able to see themselves in a profession to know that it's viable mm-hmm. I was going to say, it's not very visible, right? So that's part of the problem, I think, with design work is that the the work is visible, but the person behind the work is not. Whereas theater, especially professional theater, has made a big deal recently and has succeeded somewhat starting to uh, put more people of color on stage. So the visible people, the directors a little bit more, but the designers are, you know, we don't get to see them. 
right? And right. so I wonder if that's one of the reasons why it's taking so long. Maybe, right, because people think it doesn't matter who their designers are. I mean, they right. think it matters, obviously, because right. they pick the people that they want, right? right? It doesn't um, matter their, but, their background. Right, mm. but that it doesn't matter for the story that we're telling that we pick the best people to tell that story. Yeah. I don't know, right? Yeah. Like, I, when we were talking earlier about mentorship, you know, like, in all the time, all the years that I was an assistant, when I was living in San Diego out of grad school, I worked for a single female lighting designer. Uh, you you know, I worked for Jamie Lee Smith on a production of The Who and the What, and... I will still call her because she is the only female lighting designer that I know who is also a full professor and a mom. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's not a large field. There aren't a lot of, a lot of you. And so that's why I was, I wanted to talk about this more because I, I, you know, is there something about perhaps building a pipeline and now that you're, you know, you're a teacher and, 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 you know, you're seeing your students because, you know, you're an assistant professor in, in, in the School of Theater at George Mason, for those listening, in Fairfax, Virginia. So, I mean, you have students now, design students and others. Um, I mean, is it hard to get students of color interested in design work? Well, it's hard to get students of color into institutions that mm -hmm. are dominated by white folks. Sure. I mean, right, like, let's be clear about what's happened, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it. I don't think that there's a pipeline problem. I don't okay. think that we can honestly say with a straight face that black children are not interested in careers in entertainment. Right, sure. Right? Um, but we can say that as institutions, we do not make ourselves um, accessible attractive mm -hmm. uh, to black and indigenous students. So they don't see themselves. Uh, they don't see it as a potential, as a, as a something that they could do. Like you, you were right. talking about, you didn't. But it's not on them. Correct. It's on us. Absolutely. Right. Because the environment <laughs> isn't such, they don't see it as a possibility because they haven't seen. And perhaps because, you know, people like you come, you know, being, front and center and speaking out about it, that's super important because you are, like it or not, you know, a role model and, 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 and people see it and then maybe there are people of color, students of color that see your work and go, oh, that is a possibility. It is something I can do. Whereas they've never been, like even you yourself growing up didn't have a mentor who said, you know, you really should be a lighting designer. So no one ever yeah. said that to you. Right? Yeah. No one ever said that. <laughs> right. So it wasn't seen that that was something that you could do or w would be interested in doing. Right. right. But I think that people of color do get asked to perform a lot. They do mm -hmm. get asked to be on stage. And that seems to be sort of the place where it's allowed, quote unquote, or white people or people who are not uh, of color, the, that you know, uh, not minority, they, they go, well, we can have you on stage because you're super talented and you know, you're great and do that thing that you do or whatever. And it is sort of ghettoizing, right? Because it puts, yeah. puts them and it focuses. And I know that you, I know from our work, because we're, we're colleagues a lot uh, at school, that you're constantly trying to find the tech, you know, the tech dreams in the people, right? In the students. Who wants to be a tech, right? Who wants to do design? And right. it, yes. it must be frustrating. I am constantly questioning students to be like, hey, well, have you thought about this? And I think that it comes from my own 
way that I got into design work that, right, like, because I think that for some students, it's hard to give up on that dream Mm -hmm. of singing and dancing on stage or whatever that is. But I'm like, hey, here's another thing you can do, right? Because we need all types of people to make the theater work. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm like, hey, if you love this, if there's something about this you love, let's figure out the way that you fit best into this medium instead of you going off and doing something else. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and I think that it is true that a lot of young people, when they're first starting in theater, yes, being a performer is sort of our first exposure to what that is, right? We're usually thrown on stage, right? Uh, But then what? Not everyone can be on stage and not everyone should be, right? And so what are the behind the scenes things that you can do the other side of the creative table? So. Um, now, you know, you're, you're, as I mentioned, you are a professor, assistant professor at School of Theater at George Mason University. And, um, you know, I assume that, you know, w- what is your main goal in teaching the next generation of theater designers? Do you have a specific thing that you try to pass on to them, impart to them, or, or a specific method or style? Or what do you, how do you work with your students in the classroom? I think that I'm drawn to teaching because I am interested in an investment in our art form. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a big part of what it's about for me. And also I love learning. And so um, being a teacher is a good excuse to keep on investigating and learning new ideas and new techniques yeah. and to, to think about where the next, what is next Right. And so that I'm most excited about that, about like what is the next step? What's the next evolution of the American theater? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I'm interested really in exploring with my students as much as possible. And that's that's why I teach. And which is one of the things that's sort of one of the sort of silver linings of this moment. Right. Is that we are having to drastically rethink the way that we teach theater. why we teach it Mm -hmm. and why we have to gather to perform it um and so this is our in that way this is sort of an exciting year i'm really excited about what i'm going to discover with my students in the classroom this year about what is essential yeah that's a great way to, to think about it and you know how you how we all can grow and learn and i know that you recently led a uh i put together a virtual uh conference on theater, um, teaching theater for um, some of the faculty at Mason, but also for faculty around the country, not just at Mason, from other parts of, of the country as well. So, what did you get? What did you get out of that uh, conference? It sounds like you've already started to think through some thoughts of where we're heading and what you you, know, you see for the future. Yeah, I mean the the, the conference the conference was sort of a, a you know. Ugh what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? And how can I get all of the smart people that I know in a room, a virtual room, so we can talk about this? Mm -hmm. Um, My biggest takeaway from the conference is about um, acknowledging this moment that we're living through, Mm -hmm. not trying to hide it from our students or Mm -hmm. talk about things as business as usual. I think if we're all going to get through this and come out of it on the other side, there's going to be a lot of pain. There's going to be a lot of trauma. Yeah. And we're gonna, and we're not counselors, but we have to cope with that. 
as teachers and instructors and knowing that um, my experience is not the same as my students' experience of this moment Mm -hmm. Um, and that I can't know what someone's experience of it is going to be. And it's not like I'm going to be in a room with them and be able to, you know, that idea of feeling the room and reading the room, Mm. that is much more reduced in this moment and like knowing when there's an issue and being able to address it head on. So I think for me, the, another thing that's going to be important this year is about right being as transparent as possible with my students about like what is going on mm-hmm. yeah, and not hiding from it or being like, oh, hey, we're not going to talk about this thing that happened or that thing that happened. We're just going to focus on the work. And it's like, well, how can you really focus on different types of plywood when your grandma is sick, right? Yeah. Like, uh, right. let's no, be real absolutely. about well, that for a second. <laughs> right, and then by doing, by not, if you don't acknowledge it, then, you know, you don't get anything out of it. It's sort of a repression, right? You need to acknowledge it and then see how that acknowledgement and how when you sit in your feelings and are in there, how does that shape and then change the work right. that you're doing? So yeah. I, I'm just curious because as someone who also, you know, has had to move my classes online and I teach something that's very hands-on, you know, if I'm teaching dance to a, a group of, of, of students or stage combat or movement choreography, that's something that in the room is one totally different experience, right, than doing it over the computer. And I'm struggling with some of those things as a teacher. And like you said, we're going to talk about it in, our, in my class. But um, how are you adapting your class then? Because I feel like, you know, I, I don't know much about the, the platforms and the, and the um, techniques or tools that you may have to teach lighting design. But without being able to be in the theater and look and see how a, a light looks hung a certain way versus another way or at a different angle. How do you, how do you impart some of that online? It's, it's very difficult. I was teaching lighting in the spring um, when we had to pivot mm-hmm. and it was, um, it was very difficult. And I made a lot of mistakes. Sure. You know, I spent a lot of time focused on trying to teach students how to use a piece of software that like really they didn't need to learn how to use Mm. um that what i because what i wanted in the long run was for them to tell me like you know i added this light because i needed for this moment to convey this idea Uh, yes and and that was the thing that sort of got failed to that they that was the learning outcome that they were not meeting and mm. what because instead they were focused on trying to figure out how to use this software right. you know mm. and so i so the so luckily for me i don't have to teach learning design again until <laughs> until the spring okay. so i have some time to sort of think about sure. how i can how i can um deliver that but i think it is going to be a lot about talking more about theory, talking more about aesthetics, talking more about why we make the choices we make and not how we make them. Right. You know, or like what exactly is the thing you're going to use, but why you're going to use that thing. Right. Right. And again, getting back to like just this baseline of like everything has to be rooted in meaning. Right. Mm. And I think that you are (coughs) smart to take that approach because you know, as someone who grew up, you know, and working in choreography, which is, has some similar, you know, it's design, 
you're choreographing. Um, no one ever taught me how to choreograph. I learned to, how to do it by doing it, right? But what I learned was exactly what you're talking about, which is how to equate whatever design choice you're making with the script, how to connect it to what you're feeling, to what you want to bring to the piece, to what the piece says to you, the text uh, is speaking about. And that's what you're saying to, to form artists that are, and designers that are able to do that. That's more important than the actual technique of what they're going to do. They can always learn that by doing. Exactly. <laughs> right. Like it's going to be easier to learn how to light a thing when we have a thing to light. Exactly. Um, exactly. Right now exactly. we don't have any things to light. So right. like, that's okay. So why we not can, focus on other skills? Right. Because those other things will come with practice and experience anyway. And the thing yeah. that often gets overlooked, people spend a lot of time. This is something that what you're talking about really reshaping how we think on teaching. A lot of people spend a lot of time with the practical. This is how you throw this punch. This is how you, you know, do this chasse step. You know, I'm thinking of purely in movement terms. But the reality is all the stuff that really matters, it's underneath it, the choices, the artistic part of it gets overlooked a lot of times. So now you're able to focus on that. Exactly. That's great. Yeah, we can, spend, we can spend our time for, focused on theory, and I think they'll still come out of it um, ready to take those next steps. That's wonderful. Well... You know, adapting is not easy, and, and we've all been struggling with that, so I was just curious to see how you were gonna do that, and it sounds great, and I'm excited. I'd like to take the class uh, in the spring. <laughs> so so um, how would you like to see, you know, if you had your, this is, you know, just to wrap up, I wanted to get a bit of your view, because um, we're almost out of time, but uh, sure. I'd just see um, your view of design for theater and how you think it'll change and develop. You've already hinted at a couple of things as we were talking, but how do you think it's going to develop over then? And where are we going to be in 10 years? You know, taking into account all this craziness that's happening right now with COVID and the pandemic, but where do you think we're headed? I, I hope that um, we can focus more on how we make things mm. and right. Like the, the, this, this model of making things, right? Like when I am on a contract, I have a residency of like 15 days normally. Well, yeah. And then the rest of the work that I do happens um, either before in small meetings, right? Um, and while I appreciate that pace at times, right? Mm -hmm. Like I think that we can make theater in a way that is not so taxing on us as humans. Mm. Um, you mean the rush, and, the rush to get things done quickly? Yes, yeah. the rush and the stress. Yes. Um, right, like I don't, I don't understand why in a non-commercial model we seem to be so fixated on how much everything costs. Huh. Um, and so that, that is the thing that I would like to see people pay more attention to when we come back. Mm, that's interesting. Right, like does everything need to fit into the same text schedule or can we adapt this text schedule to make it make sense for the particular production? Some shows need three days of tech. Some shows need 10 days of tech. And I've seen people stretch. I've seen directors stretch shows that needed three days of tech into shows that needed 12 days of tech for no reason and oh. cause a lot of stress for no reason. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's, I, I, I think it is just like more, it comes back to right, like this whole thing about like, how do you hire designers, right? Like, how do you investigate? Like, I think we need to do 
do a deep investigation of why we do things the way that we do. Mm. Right? We can't just like hold things up and be like tradition anymore. Mm. Right. Well, because there is a long tradition of doing things a certain way. And I was talking to um, Michael Bobbitt a couple of months ago, who's artistic director at New Rep, a great, uh, great guy. And he's just taking the reins over there. And, you know, theaters are doing things the same way that they've been doing them for hundreds of years. And his question is, why? Why? Yes. If it doesn't fit our model today, why are we continuing to say, no, no, tech must be this long for this period of time, and then you do this, and then you do that, because that's the way it's always been. So how do we break some of those traditions to do stuff that works for us today, right? Yeah. Because some of that stuff is old. old. (laughs) I'm teaching a class this fall called Professional Presentation. Mm. And that's for the an upper division class about like, what's your plan? What are you going to do in five years? And how do you successfully communicate that? And mm. one of the things I want, I'm going to start with, right, is that like, there's no right or wrong answers mm. here, right? Yeah. Like, and I think that this is true in the theater, like, there are ways that work for you. Yeah. And there are ways that work that do not harm anyone. Mm. And we in the theater need to put those two things together right now because they're out of balance a lot of the things that we do that work are harmful Mm. interesting yeah no i mean i I think you're absolutely right and i think that for the for a theater to go into the next you know the rest of this decade uh, the decade and the rest of this um sorry this new decade and the rest of the century we and in order to survive we need to evolve and change mm-hmm. the way we do things. And I'm hoping, you know, this new generation that you and I are both teaching, they really um, are able to see things from a very non-traditional way, which I really enjoy. And they seem to be a lot more open uh, to, to difference, to change, to expansion. Uh, and, you know, and I'm really excited about what that'll bring. So, well, Sharice, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. I wish we had more time, but um, thank you so much for, for speaking with, here, with us here at American Theatre Artists Online. And um, I promise you won't be the last designer we talk to. You're the first right. and of a long line that are now have to, have to come after you to, to, to talk to us more about all the different aspects of design as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks so much, Sharice. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.